Thank you. Did Paul, did you write that song? Didn't you write that song? Paul wrote that song. <clears throat> Let's pray. Oh God, before whom all hearts are open, and yet while our hearts may be open to you, sometimes they're not even open to ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that we would be honest and open and vulnerable with ourselves this morning, that you would give us awareness of where we are and who we are, that we can think through questions together in sincerity and honesty, knowing that truth comes from you and you alone, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would deal with us. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, at the 9 o'clock hour, we, uh, we were looking at and discussing what it means to make a defense of the faith. We're thinking in the vein of uh, 1 Peter 3.15, uh, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we heard from uh, various members of our church that have done that in, in different fields, different vocations, different ages and stages of life, different obstacles and challenges, and yet they stood on faith in their various circumstances and proclaim the good news. Next week at the 9 o'clock hour, if you can't tell, we're trying to plug this 9 o'clock hour, and it was good that many of you were here, but next week uh, at 9 o'clock we'll hear from some who have been rejected by their families and their communities because they chose to follow Christ. And how they in turn respond, not out of animosity or anger or revenge, but in love, they take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ back to the very communities that have rejected them, offering forgiveness in Christ. And then in the last two Sundays in July... At the 9 o'clock hour, we'll have Dr. Bill Davis, who will be bringing uh, the generations together in an effort to help the older generation understand the challenges that the younger generations face from an apologetic viewpoint and how the two or three or even the four generations can come together supporting one another in truth. But here's the thing. All those things that I just mentioned, they all sound difficult. It all has challenge and confrontation and difficulty in its description. Why is this the case? Why do we have all these challenges facing us? Why do we face rejection for our faith? Why do we have obstacles when we make attempts to share the good news of the gospel? 
Well, we live in a sinful world that is perpetually turning its back on God. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Great. But he didn't leave it there. For take heart, I have overcome the world. If Jesus has overcome the world, then why does it more often than not not feel like that? It often feels like the the world has overtaken Christians and the gospel. It, It often feels like we are constantly at war with our own sinfulness. We are at war with our own desires. We are at war with fellow believers, not just those who disagree with us. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we handle this? Where can we find hope and help and truth and joy amidst these struggles? It's in the issue of kingdom that we find it. It is through the kingdom of God that we can make sense of our situations. It is through the the lens of who rules us and to whom we give authority in our lives that gives us the capability of looking at the trials and the circumstances and the scenarios that we face and we can have a response and we can have joy and we can have clarity. And that's what we're looking at this month as we open God's Word and find out what kingdom and non-kingdom life looks like. Does that sound good? Well, if it doesn't, tough. (laughs) I've already picked the passage. There'll be half as many people next week. Uh, And as we turn to our passage for... This morning, let me say a few words about context. Dad makes it abundantly clear that it is extremely important that Scripture be read within its context. Uh, And I'm going to continue to make that point uh, today because it is particular, is true, and particularly necessary uh, for these verses. Because it could be easy to walk into Luke chapter 18, ignoring what has taken place before in the preceding chapter and not know or understand the context into which this parable was written. It could be easy to misunderstand the characters of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. It could be easy to draw conclusions that are actually incorrect from the text. And so we look at Luke chapter 17 for some perspective. And Luke Chapter 17 really sets the stage for this whole chapter of Luke 18. And in Luke 17, verse 20, the Pharisees have come and they are asking Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the kingdom of God come? He answers the Pharisees that the kingdom of God will not come in ways that are observed. Remember, the Jews are looking for the Messiah who will cast the shackles of the Roman influence, the Roman subjugation on the Jews off and establish the throne of David for the Jewish people. For them, it's going to take a very tangible 
a look. It's going to take a very tangible um, way forward. And Jesus goes on, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. How can the kingdom of God be in their midst and still coming? Here is the biblical concept of the already and the not yet. Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God. When God left heaven and broke through, coming down to earth as a man. Jesus is king of kings, and yet, as we said earlier, it doesn't always feel like that. Because his current status as cosmic ruler, as cosmic king, is invisible. The world is either ignorant of his sovereignty or denies it. It is the task of the church. It is the task of the church to give visible witness to the invisible kingdom. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. He has already been enthroned in heaven, but it is as though he is a king in exile with only a few followers. And at his return, at his second coming, he will fully consume his reign. It is already and it is not yet. I, I think that pr that present reality is, is so often forgotten. We get so hung up on the, the future reality and forget that the victory is also for today. That we are people of hope, not just for the future in heaven, but for today as well, for the present as well. It's like when Lazarus dies and Jesus goes and visits Bethany and he says he will rise again. And Martha says, well, Lord, we know that at the very end, at the culmination of everything, that he will, we will all rise again. Well, Jesus was about to do something different than that. But, but, but more than that, the, the, the abundant, the thing that Martha didn't understand is that the abundant life of the age to come begins now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just in that future reality of which we look forward to, but there's a reality of his kingdom now, and I think we often forget that, and so we live defeated lives. Well, then Jesus continues on in chapter 17, and he turns to his disciples to give them some more information. Jesus gives them insights into what that future day of the Son of Man will look like. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. There will be this separation on that day, and it will be sudden, and it will be definite. Those who have submitted themselves to the kingdom of Christ, those who have recognized Jesus as Savior and Lord, will be snatched up. And those who do not and have not recognized the kingship of Christ will face a very different judgment. It's very sobering, very sobering. And Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, 
Will he find faith on the earth? And so the question one would ask is how can we endure to the end? How, in light of all of this, can we make it to the end? So Jesus gives his disciples an illustration to show that they should always pray and never give up. Always pray and never give up. I'm going away for a time, and there will be a delay between my departure and my return. And Jesus knows his disciples. He knows that they are prone to lose heart and become fearful. And so Jesus gives them this parable to help. And we read in the book of Acts about Jesus' followers and the the conflicts and the the, uh, trials that come their way. He, He knows that they will face adversity and persecution. He knows that they will face a rejection and hatred and animosity. He knows that they will face physical abuse and eventually death for what they believe and for what they proclaim. And this is true throughout the history of the church. Now, we may not be facing these specific trials, but there are people around the world who are. But we still face opposition now, maybe, again, not in that same sense, but even in today's hypersensitive political uh, climate, uh, being a Christian can be very difficult because of our biblical view on marriage because of our biblical view on sexuality, because of our biblical view on the sanctity of life, because of our biblical view of salvation in Christ alone. Gone are the days when these views were somewhat mainstream and generally accepted. Okay, but beyond rejection and defending the faith, What about in the mundaneness of life? What about the mundanity of life, the the entire opposite end of the spectrum from persecution? Because in verse 26 of chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, Jesus describes what the end will look like, and he doesn't describe persecution and great trials in life. He describes something which probably sounds eerily familiar to us. As it was in the times of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. People were on with their busy lives, busy with all the things that keep us busy, 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 busy with non-kingdom things, busy with non-eternal things, marrying and giving in marriage, meaning they were carrying on with their normal lives. They were living their lives up to that day when Noah went into the ark and the flood destroyed them all. Verse 28, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus says, 
It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Everybody busy with life, and then judgment day will come. Busy with life can also indicate that we are prioritizing the things of this world. Verse 31, he continues on, On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with goods inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. How can we make sure that we don't become like Lot's wife, too much in love with the things of this world? How can we resist that relentless temptation of Sodom to be desensitized to God's kingdom by the ordinary pressures of daily life? Did you notice that back in verse 28 that Jesus doesn't even mention sodomy in the list of what characterizes Sodom uh, just before its destruction? In fact, he doesn't mention anything in itself sinful. They ate, drank, bought, sold, planted, built. Judgment didn't come upon Sodom merely because it had practicing homosexuals in it, but also because all the good, ordinary activities of life were godless. As John Piper says, the good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life can. And so the disciples of Jesus are left in a tremendous battle, which most people don't even know is going on. It's a battle to maintain radical, heartfelt, self-denying faith in Christ, not only in the threat of persecution and sinful temptation but also in the threat of ordinary home life and ordinary business life, which can blunt all of our sensitivity to God's eternal kingdom. So what do we do in days like this? Jesus tells us, always pray and do not give up. And he illustrates this with a point. He tells the parable of a widow who would not leave an unjust judge alone. And let me say this. This is probably how a lot of the world, and dare I say even parts of the church, view how we are to treat God. That we come begging, that we come nagging, pleading our case so that God will finally give in to our demands and give us what we want. This would be an example of misunderstanding and misapplying Scripture, of taking it out of its context. What a blessing that this is not a description of our God. More on this in a second. I think we would miss an important piece here if we neglect the fact that this would actually have been quite a shocking parable that Jesus was telling. In that day, widows were the most defenseless people in that culture. They were constantly oppressed, constantly harassed, and taken advantage of. 
I know for a fact that the widows here at Apostles are highly regarded. They are a blessing to so many of us uh, through the various ministries that they perform for this body. Not so uh, in that day. Back then, for a widow to get justice would have been nearly impossible. The disciples listening to the parable would have known what Jesus was saying. He illustrates to them that this widow keeps coming back to the unjust judge for justice. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. She will not leave him alone. She's not asking him for a favor. She is asking him to do what is right. Notice that the widow plays to the judge's character, and this is important. She knows his character, that he only does things for himself, for self-preservation. Listen to what he says. Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see to it that she gets justice so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. He neither fears God nor cares about people. His only concern is for himself. It is for selfish reasons that he gives in to this widow. Is this a description of our God? Does this describe our God? No. So if the judge is not representative of God, then what does he represent? One some cases, he is the exact opposite of God. Our God is not like this judge. He is completely different. The judge is an evil man. Our God is good. The judge is selfish. Our God is gracious. The judge cares nothing for God or man. Our God is merciful. The judge hides from true justice. Our God is just. The judge lacks integrity. Our God is righteous. The judge has no care for people. Our God is love and his name is love. Everything the judge is, our God is not. And everything that our God is, the judge is not. But there's more than that. We are not like this widow, this widow who is helpless, this widow who is nameless, We are God's children. He died on a cross for us. We are his chosen, his elect, his loved children, chosen before the foundations of the earth. Let the contrast of these two set in for you. Remember, the widow knows the unjust judge's character. She knows that he is impatient. She knows that he does not want to be bothered. And so she plays to his character. Just as we go to our God because of his character, we can approach him because he has made himself available to us. We can come to him because he wants us to come to him the way a child comes to a loving parent. There is a difference between nagging God to get what you want and remaining in the presence of God, before the throne of God, awaiting his response to our prayers. It is the attitude which differentiates the two. An understanding of who God really is 
One demands and pesters and and bothers because the judge is wicked and unjust. The other stands before God patiently, trusting that his response is for our good and for his glory. While there is a contrast between God and this unjust judge, there's also this model that Jesus uses a number of times. If even the unjust judge the one who doesn't even care, if he is willing to give justice, how much more will the God whose name is justice grant justice to his elect? Verse 7, Jesus says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Or as the ESV says, will he delay long over them? And so the question is, well, okay, well, what is justice in this case? You've said that word a lot. What are we talking about? Is he talking about immediate justice? Is he talking about the the person who has wronged you receiving justice? Is he talking about bringing justice or resolution to your current situation? In the context of this passage, he's talking about ultimate justice. He's talking about the end of days, son of man justice, when all of the wrongs are made right, when all of the suffering is undone, when all of the sinfulness of this world is done away with. Remember, remember Jesus give, is giving this parable in response to the question about the coming of the kingdom of God. And he says, this is to be reminding you to always be praying and never give up. Praying for that day. Now, it may seem to the disciples and to us that his return is slow. The cries have gone out from his people, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we need to look at Scripture to understand his delays. And we see what Scripture says about the delay of God when we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 in the context of the scoffers who are coming and saying, where is this coming that he promised? Things have been going on as usual since the beginning. Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is why he delays for the unjust. For those who are apart from him. For the expansion of his kingdom. And if that describes you, you need to know there's delay for a reason. That God is orchestrating and putting people in your life for a purpose. It's not happenstance, it's not random, it's not coincidence. It is by design. But what about for us? What about us, his children, as it relates to his chosen ones? We look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, in this, this new birth in Jesus, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine 
and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, God will not keep putting his people off like the unjust judge did. Any delay that God has will have a good reason in God's infinite wisdom and sovereignty. What may seem like a delay to us is the outworking of God's patience to gather his elect through the preaching and the proclaiming and the sharing of his gospel, of his good news. And we can be confident that God is working all things together for our good in every single circumstance. Therefore, we don't need to frantically assault God's door. We don't need to nag God. We don't need to mindlessly beg and plead. What we need to do is remain steadfast. We need to trust. We need to always pray and not give up. Always praying, not being a chance to earn salvation points or good standing, But always praying is a status issue. It reminds me that I have submitted myself to the kingdom of God, to his power and his authority in my life, whatever may come, because there is no other place I would rather be. Any other place would be foolish. And so Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In a minute, we're going to sing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and I know many of you know it well. And many of you are familiar with the story of Horatio Spafford and his wife, Anna, a prosperous lawyer and a Presbyterian elder, Spafford and his wife lived in Chicago with their four girls uh, until the great Chicago fire took place, destroying nearly everything in the city. And um, after the devastation, they needed to get away. And a few years later, the family uh, wanted to go to Europe with some friends. And so uh, they went on. Horatio had to stay back in Chicago because of some business things. And he sent Anna and the girls ahead. And the ship that the the family was on was rammed by a British vessel and sank in minutes. And Anna sends a telegram back to Horatio with the words, Saved alone. All four girls had perished. And when Horatio made his way out to see his wife, when he reached the site where the shipwreck took place, He wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. There's more to the story that I don't think too many of us know. The the Spaffords went back to Chicago, and they had two more children, a girl and a boy. And the boy succumbed to scarlet fever and passed. And the rumors went around in their church, what had the Spaffords done that God could visit such misfortune on them? And so the Spaffords uprooted and moved to Jerusalem with a few other families. And they started a community that was dubbed the American Colony. And this place would feed the destitute and serve as an orphanage during World War I. 
And in his years in Jerusalem, Horatio wrote poems in a book called Waiting for Morning. One was based on Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, entitled, How Long, O Lord? Looking forward to the day that Christ would return in fullness and the fullness of that kingdom. Even in the midst of great trials and in the midst of everyday mundane life, Horatio Spafford's words remind us to always pray and never give up because we know the character of our God. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray. Lord, so often we think of life in terms of persecution and not persecution, and so rarely do we think about the everyday, the blah, the things we think are meaningless, time killers, time wasters, and yet how dangerous those things can be. We begin to think of your kingdom as that glorious day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, whether willingly or unwillingly. And yet the truth is, while that is absolutely true, we so often forget that your kingdom is here and now and you were standing before those Pharisees when they asked, where is the kingdom? When will it come They had no idea that they were speaking to the Lord's anointed one. I think of the weight of those words, the kingdom is in your midst. And now that you have died on the cross and been raised to life, we can be a new creation in the face of persecution and obstacles, but also in that everyday life, which can be such a struggle. May we not be like the people of Sodom who got busy with being busy. But, oh Lord, may we be focused on kingdom things. May we look out into your world and see people who need truth and love and forgiveness and hope and healing. May we not be people who are silent, 
but ones who speak out. May we be people who have trust and assurance in the truths that you have given us. May our hope be in Christ. May our hope be in Christ. Amen.